Bible, if you would, turn to uh, Esther chapter 7. Did anyone here remember watching this, maybe as you were growing up? Did you ever watch Scooby-Doo? It was a pretty predictable uh, show, wasn't it? It always kind of followed the same plot pattern. Uh, Scooby and Shaggy and the crew would all roll up in the mystery machine, and, and they were there to investigate some kind of paranormal activity. Something odd was going on. Usually it involved ghosts or ghouls or boogeymen of some kind. And, of course, as the episode would go on, it always ended the same way. They would finally capture the villain, and they would tear off the mask. And it turns out, all along, it was old Mr. Jones. And he would have got away with it if it hadn't been for those meddling kids. And it was always the same formula. Every episode ended with them taking off the mask, and the, the supposed ghost or whatever it was was always revealed to be just an ordinary person trying to get their own plan over on people. Well, this morning I've entitled our message, Masks Off, and this might surprise you, but I actually came up with this title before masks were a big conversation around America. Uh, when I was first planning the series on Esther, uh, the title fits with what we're going to talk about, but it's not meant to be political, so we're not trying to make some statement about uh, masks in America. I'm talking about a different kind of mask. I'm talking not about the mask that people wear to try and protect themselves, but a mask that people wear to try and conceal themselves, to try and hide their identity, to try and hide their character. In fact, masks have often been used as a metaphor for hiding one's true character behind some kind of a facade. So a person who wears a mask is someone who is playing a charade of types. They are trying to hide themselves and their real nature behind some kind of a, a barrier. And I think we are probably all guilty at some point in our lives of wearing a mask. We, we oftentimes want to portray ourselves differently than we are. Maybe we want to be seen as more organized or more righteous or more uh, upstanding than in fact we are in real life. And we try to hide the worst parts of our character from the sight of others. Uh, we try and cover over our inclination towards lying or selfishness or angry outbursts or immorality. Now, there are many reasons why a person might wear a mask or try and conceal who they really are. And some of those will become apparent as we look to the scriptures this morning. One thing is clear, and the, and the reason I want to highlight this issue of masks is here. Who you really are will eventually be exposed. Who you really are will eventually be exposed. No matter how long or how carefully you wear that mask, the truth of who you really are will come out eventually to your children, to your spouse, to your employer, to your friends, to your church family. But even if you do an outstanding job of hiding your true identity behind the mask, ultimately God will always know who you really are behind that. It's interesting, as we look at Esther 7, we usually think of villains, bad guys, as the ones who wear masks. But through the first half of Esther, we have seen that our hero, Esther herself, has been wearing a mask of sorts, hasn't she? Her identity has been kept concealed all of this time. From the time she enters the king's house and she is informed by Mordecai, told by Mordecai, don't let anyone know who you are. 
From that time on, she has carefully concealed her identity in the palace. Besides a few close personal attendants, no one knows who she really is. The king, her husband, doesn't even know that she is in fact Jewish. But as the course of this chapter goes on, we're going to find that Esther's mask is suddenly taken off here at this pivotal moment. And we noticed that last week that chapter 6 is the hinge upon which the book of Esther turns. It's that pivot point. Haman's downfall begins in chapter 6, and it's going to be continued all the way through 7. And the whole rest of the book of Esther is the undoing of Haman's wickedness. And, of course, the exaltation of Mordecai and Esther. But chapter 7 continues that story of Haman's downfall and all that is God is accomplishing behind the scenes. Now, chapter 6 ended with this statement, verse 14, while they were still talking with him, that is, talking with Haman, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. So if you remember... Haman had gone to the palace that morning, hoping to execute Mordecai. Instead, what was to be Haman's greatest day turned into a nightmare for him. Because instead of having Mordecai's head on a platter, he was marching Mordecai through the streets, crying out against his will, thus is done for the man the king desires to honor. So after that day of praising Mordecai, Haman slips home and he tells his family about his misfortune. And then it says here that the attendants come and they whisk him away. So hardly had Haman had time to get home and change his clothes, he's off to Esther's banquet, which unbeknownst to him will be his final undoing. Now I imagine as Haman is is walking towards the palace, as he's going to visit the banquet, he's probably pretty sullen. You know, he's pretty upset the day's events. But in my imagination, I, I picture Haman walking, and as he's going, a slight evil smile begins to creep upon his face. Yeah, Mordecai won today, but guess what? The edict is still there. I will have the last laugh. I, I may not have been able to kill Mordecai today, but when the purge comes, all the Jews will be destroyed, including Mordecai. And so Haman is hanging on to that little piece of hope. I still got the edict. I will finally have the upper hand. And so he enters the banquet hall. And that's what we open up with chapter 7. So I want us to sort of slip in to the banquet hall behind Haman and kind of take a position close to the wall, kind of in the background, and just observe what happens in this incredible night. A night when masks will come off. And I want us to look at several bombshells that are exposed here this very evening. The evening begins with, number one, the great reveal. It begins with this great reveal that takes place. For the past two days, the king had been wondering, what is Esther up to? After all, she had risked her life to come into the the court And she had deferred to answer his question until the banquet. And then the the previous evening, they had had a banquet, and Esther again had deferred to this night. And so the king's curiosity is piqued. What is it Esther wants? It's obviously important, or she wouldn't have gone to such lengths to bring this question to the king. So tonight, 
she would share her secret. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Up to half the kingdom. It shall be done. So the banquet is all set. The table is out. The food is, is sumptuous. The best wine of the empire is being served in their goblets. But the food wasn't the point. This wasn't just a cordial get-together of close friends. Everybody knew that there was a question lingering in the air. And so the king broaches the topic. He says, listen, you're not here just for lack of company. What is it you want? Tell me. And he, he sort of makes this formulaic offer, up to half the empire, whatever you want. Again, I don't think the king was necessarily going to honor up to half the kingdom. But that was a way of saying, name it, Esther. Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And so he asks her plainly. But I doubt that King Ahasuerus was ready for the answer. Because it comes in verse 3. Then Esther, Queen Esther, answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given to me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. What we see here, Esther answers the question, but in so doing, she reaches up and she takes off her mask. She's going to reveal her true identity here. Now, it's not overt, but you notice what she says? I and my people. She's she's going out on a limb here and saying, I am among those people whom you have condemned. She's revealing herself. Showing her hand, if you will. And I wonder if this wasn't a bit of a relief to Esther. Now, after all these years of keeping this secret, finally she gets to get it out. And yet that relief, whatever that might have been, is certainly tempered by fear. Because how is the king going to respond to this? Now, already God's hand has been at work in softening the heart of the king. But Esther starts by pleading for her people. This is where she begins. She begins by pleading for her people. And in fact, she begins, interestingly, in in verse 3, she, again, uses these formulaic expressions. If I found favor in your sight, O king, if it pleases the king. And those, those are just sort of formulaic expressions, but at the same time, they recognize, king, you're going to do what you're going to do. You're the one who's in charge. I'm not going to tell you, but I'm going to make my petition. And if it pleases you, then do according to your will. Which I had to pause there as I was studying this passage and say, how often do we approach God in that same sort of manner? Because God is the ultimate sovereign. All things are in his hands. And sometimes our petitions, our requests sound a little bit more like demands. Instead of saying, Lord, you are the one fully in charge of everything. You will do what you will, but let me make my request. Nevertheless, she, she uses this expression, you know, the king, if I find favor in your sight, if it pleases you, let my life be given to me. She makes this really personal, doesn't she? She, she makes it sound initially that her life, well, and in, in truth, her life is being threatened. She says, my neck is on the line here, king. 
give me my life. And I, I think that probably would have startled the king. What? Who's targeting you? You know, someone's out to hurt you? What? And I think if we would have leaned into this. Now, obviously, she was not being targeted alone. She was part of the Jewish people who were planned for persecution, for extermination. But nevertheless, she starts with herself. I think, again, working towards helping the king to see the seriousness of this. Not to mention, the king, just the previous night, had been reminded of an attempt on his life. An attempt that Mordecai had thwarted. So that would have been fresh on his mind. You know, he, he himself was spared. He, he was spared from the danger of assassins. Now his queen is telling her, I'm being targeted. What? So the king perks up and he begins to listen to what she has to say. But not only her, she says, my people also. Right? She says, my people are, are planned to be killed and destroyed. She's not asking for herself alone, but for all of her people who are going to be swept away in this terrible destruction. And then in verse 4, she says, for we have been sold. In this case, they had literally been sold. If you remember back in chapter 3, Haman had offered vast sums of money to the king in order to sort of get this uh, edict through the legislation. And so there literally was a transaction now. We, you can make the case that the king is the one who sold the people, right? Because he's the one who was receiving. But Esther's not going to pin this on the king. After all, it was Haman's plan to begin with. The king was sort of a, a dupe in this whole thing. And so rather than impugning him, she points to the real culprit. And notice also in verse 4, she says, My people and I are, have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Those three words, killed and annihilated, uh, destroyed, those were all words that were in the edict itself. So she's quoting where it comes from. Uh, so you couldn't miss this. I mean, it's pretty obvious what she's referring to. Now, apparently the king does miss this somewhat. Uh, perhaps he gets fixated on the part about Esther being targeted. But in verse 4, she says, Listen, gang, I wouldn't have even made this an issue. I wouldn't have even brought this to you if it was just a matter of my people being turned into slaves. That's, that's not big enough to, to even bother you about. But this is so serious. The wholesale destruction of thousands upon thousands of lives. If it had been something less than what it is, I wouldn't have even bothered to, to worry you about this. But... What Haman was planning was absolutely heinous. So she begins by pleading for her people. But I also want to point out that in the process, she is identifying with God's people. So she's not only pleading for them. I mean, Esther, you can imagine a scenario where Esther could have come out and kept her identity hidden, right? She could have come out and said, listen, king, it's come to my attention that uh, you will sign an edict to, to destroy the Jews. I know many good Jews. Mordecai's a good Jew. He served you faithfully. You know, I, I think it's a bad idea to kill these people. These people. But she doesn't do that. She identifies herself. She says, I. In fact, look through these verses. Uh, verse 3, she says, uh, let my life be given to me and my people. Verse three, 4, and we have been sold. Me and, or my people and I. So she's connecting herself here with God's people. Long Esther has worn a mask. 
in which no one has known her real nationality. But now she pulls it off. And she identifies with God's people. Now let me be careful how I say this because I don't want to be unkind to Esther. Um, I'm not saying that she deliberately deceived the king. It's not that she created some false story. In fact, maybe the king never even asked what her nationality or where her people were. But here she decides to reveal it. She had been anonymous in the king's house, but now she labels herself as belonging to God's people, the Jewish people whom God had called out and called his own. And that was a group which was currently under condemnation. I want us to think about an application here. Uh, as we think about the mask that we can wear. Uh, sometimes a mask is worn to cover over something, maybe wrongdoing. But it can also be worn in order to remain anonymous. And I think within the world of the you know, church, when we think about Christians today, there may be a temptation to sort of just fly under the radar. Wear the mask. There's no sense letting people know your true identity. Just, it might be easier just to sort of fly under the radar, to wear the mask, to not bother anyone or be bothered by anyone because of your faith. And you have a whole swath of anonymous Christians, people who would not be too excited for people to find out who they really are or that they really follow Christ. Uh, and, and you think of as days of persecution and trial uh, approach and, and people deal with those types of things, it becomes less and less popular to be identified with that group. Are, are we willing to be known as belonging to God's church? Or do we prefer anonymity? We think of uh, a believer who wears a mask to hide their identity so that it might not be known that they belong to Christ. And it's not that they're hiding in a cave somewhere. It's that they're hiding in plain sight. We just walk around, we live life, and we just try as, as much as we can to just not bring up topics of faith. Just try not to, to address those things. Just sort of play it easy, play it safe. Hiding in plain sight. Uh, this past summer, I was in West Virginia. I was... Visiting a church there for Teen Week. It's, a, it's an activity they do every year. It's kind of like a resident camp for teens. And there's all, a whole bunch of activities. I was the speaker uh, for a week this past summer. But they have a whole bunch of activities. There's music. There's food. There's games. Well, one particular game they did, they called Martinsburg's Most Wanted. And what it was was the teen leaders, so the, the leaders of the, the youth, uh, had their pictures all printed off on a wanted poster, about 18 of them. And so the teens formed into groups, and their job was to go around and find as many of these leaders, and the ones who were able to check off the most were the winners. And so the teen leaders scattered all over, and they were hiding in various places. But the really fascinating part was the ones who tried to hide in plain sight, and that was probably the most entertaining to watch. Uh, one fellow in particular slipped away, and he changed into a utility vest with a hard hat and a mask on. And he walked over, and he started pretending like he was working on the lights for the pavilion out there, like he was working on the electrical box. And students walked past him left and right. They just assumed he was some person that 
came onto the church campus in order to fix a few lights. And it was one of the team leaders, you know. Of course, the masks helped to conceal things. But right there, I mean, they were walking right past me. He wasn't hiding at all. He was just right there in the open. But wearing a mask. And that's what I'm saying about Esther, in a sense. She's hiding in plain sight. She's there in the palace. But keeping a low profile. As believers, we ought to let our light shine before men. In fact, with each of these points... Let me give sort of a a counter thought here as well. So within this great reveal, we see this idea, let your light shine. And that's the call to believers. Let your light shine. Listen to what it says in Matthew chapter 5. You'll know these verses. It says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Therefore, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We we know those verses, but that idea of a basket placed on top of a light. He says, you wouldn't light a, a lamp and put it under a bushel or a basket. But that's exactly this idea of mass, as, as people who refuse or, or would rather not be identified with God's church. It's as if they're hiding under a basket or a bushel. Instead, we ought to be like Esther, unashamed to be known as belonging to the Lord and his people. I'm reminded of a story, perhaps you've heard, it's of Janusz Korczak, who was a Polish author and educator, He was in Poland during the late 1800s, the early 20th century, and it was there that he ran an orphanage for Jewish children. When the Nazis came to power, the Warsaw Ghetto was formed within Poland, and he and his orphans were moved within the Warsaw Ghetto. Well, Mr. Kartsak was given several opportunities to escape, and yet he again and again refused, staying with the orphans that were under his care. Finally, the SS came, and they demanded that all 192 orphans were going to be loaded onto trains and carted off to death camps. And the Nazis gave Mr. Kortok several opportunities. In fact, they they offered to, to escort him away so that he would survive. Instead, he said, no. And the last memory of Mr. Kortok was him holding the hands of two kids as they all walked to the trains. And he climbed on with the orphans. In other words, he was saying, I'm going to be identified with these people even if it costs me. And that's kind of what I picture with Esther here. You know, if we could put it in a context of the Holocaust, imagine she reaches into her pocket, pulls out the yellow star of the Jews and pins it on her dress and says, I am one of them. That's what's going on here. She reveals herself. But of course, Esther's not the only one wearing a mask in this chapter. We also see a great surprise that's here in in Esther 7. So having said that her people are threatened and she is threatened, the king asks in verse 5, Who is he and where is he who would dare to presume in his heart to do such a thing? Who would dare, he says. Now, unfortunately... 
I'm not sure what's going on here, but the king has not picked up the hints that Esther's been laying down, right? Because she's directly quoted from Haman's edict. She's uh, identified herself. And it seems that, you know, the king should have figured out by now, oh, you mean Haman, don't you? But instead he asks, who would dare? Like I said, maybe he was fixated on this whole threat against the queen. Nevertheless, Esther points the finger, verse 6. And Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. She points the finger. And in doing so, Esther essentially reaches out and snatches the mask off of Haman's face. Because she's not the only person who's been having a secret here in the king's presence. Haman, too, has been manipulating the king and getting his way. He's not the faithful servant that he's portrayed to Ahasuerus. And this is the climactic moment, if you will, of the whole book of Esther. You know, finally, we've reached the moment where, where Esther says, it's him. It, like the moment in Scooby-Doo where they pull the mask off. It's not some phantom. It's Haman himself. And, and she says more than just Here's the bad guy. Listen to what she says in verse 6. An adversary and an enemy. Those two terms are are kind of rare words, but uh, they refer to someone who is hateful and who takes on the role of a harasser, of somebody who's doing harm. And so one translation says, hostile and hateful is this wicked Haman. That maybe captures it a little better. The point is, An enemy and an adversary sounds kind of like he's the bad guy, but it's more than that. He is a, she's exposing what he's really like. He's not the smiling, happy, joyful Haman that the king has shared so many drinking banquets with. No, he is a hostile, wicked man. And so his true colors come out as Esther points him out, as his mask comes off. You wonder how this made the king feel. I mean, after all, he had made Haman his prime minister, his right-hand man, his chief advisor, his royal donor. You know, this guy was essentially the king's best friend. And now you're telling me he's plotted against the queen and against the Jewish people as a whole? But I wonder how Haman felt. Well, the Bible tells us, verse 6, right? He was terrified before the king and queen. He knows the trap has been sprung. He's like a mouse with its tail caught under the paw of the cat, scrambling, terrified. He knows that he's been caught, and there's no getting out of this. He also knows the character of the king. This is not a king who is given to mercy and forgiveness. Okay, so he realizes This is the end of the line for Haman. We see that Haman all this time has been, in a sense, wearing a mask. And we've seen that already from Haman, haven't we? Um, For instance, when Mordecai has dared to snub old Haman. Haman walks by. He doesn't get riled or upset. He kind of just strolls by sort of with this uh, attitude of it doesn't faze me. But deep down, we know that Haman was seething with hatred towards Mordecai. You know, when when Haman comes to the king, he acts very respectful and very um, upright. But really, it seems in in Haman's heart of heart, he desired to be the king. 
And so we see a, a man who's portraying one thing but living another. Since we're talking about Scooby-Doo and classic television, you remember Leave it to Beaver and Eddie Haskell? Eddie Haskell was always the, the kid who, in the presence of the parents, he was always the perfect angel, right? He always knew the right thing to say, but as soon as the parents were gone, it was a totally different story. Well, that's Haman. In the presence of the king, he's one way, but deep down, we know the real Haman is something quite different. Haman's mask is removed. His, his true nature is exposed. And it brings us to this thought. You can't hide your sins forever. You can't hide your sins forever. Do you remember that verse in Numbers that says, Beware, your sins will find you out. And so Haman has been getting away with a lot of things. But now the masks are off, and it's revealed who he really is. And let me just say, if you wear a mask, your sins will find you out too. If you wear a mask in order to sort of conceal what, what I'm really like, or what I, uh, what's sort of hidden down in the recesses of your heart, I'm going to portray one thing, but I'm going to live a different way. That's dangerous territory to be on, because trust me, that mask will come off eventually. No matter how good you are at hiding, no matter how good you are at, at being able to deflect, eventually that mask will be exposed and you will be shown for what you really are. You might say, well, I don't, I don't know if I have that. I'm not sure that applies to me. I'm not sure I'm, I'm a mask wearer. But let me just ask a very simple and probing question here. Is there anything in your life that would be embarrassing if it was exposed? Is there anything that you really don't want somebody to find out? And if they did, it would be rough. I think if you answer that question, it might help to reveal whether or not we, in fact, do wear a mask. See, if your mask is designed to hide your sin, it will never be fully effective. It's like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. When they, they ate the fruit, and they immediately turned and sewed fig leaves together as a covering to try and hide their guilt. And essentially that's what these masks I'm talking about are. A, a tool to hide our guilt. What should we do with guilt? Well the Bible says in, in Proverbs 28.11 it says the man who covers his sin will not prosper but the man who confesses it and forsakes it will find mercy. So what do you do with a mask? Well you can, you can keep trying to play that charade as long as you want. But sooner or later, it's going to slip off. The Bible says, confess and forsake and you will find mercy. So, fellow mask wearers, the answer is not never wear a mask, because I think we've probably all failed in that attempt. The answer is confess, forsake, repent, turn to the Lord, and find his mercy sufficient. Finally, though, that we've seen the great reveal, the great surprise, and then the great demise. Haman has come literally to the end of his rope here. And in verse 7, it says, The king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. 
But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, when he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. So Haman knows what's happening here. He's quite aware what is his fate has been determined. And so rather than try and chase the king out into the courtyard, because I think Haman knew he wouldn't get anywhere by trying to argue with the king. Instead, he says, well, maybe Esther. Maybe Esther will be the key here. Maybe if I can get on her good side, maybe if I can plead for my life, she'll have mercy and I can sort of wiggle out of this trap. But I think Haman dramatically miscalculates a lot of things here, including Esther. So the king says here in verse 7, storms off into the, the garden. He has to think about this. I mean, what a shock. First of all, he finds out his wife is a Jewish woman who is now under this ban, under this purge. He also finds out that his trusted right-hand man is a, a crook and a uh, traitor. So he goes out. Now, here's the dilemma the king is facing. All right, I need to get rid of Haman. He's obviously no good. But how do I get rid of him without making myself look terrible? Because, I mean, if I, if I accuse him of, you, you, signed, or you wrote this edict that condemned the Jews... Well, all Haman has to do is say, well, whose signet ring is on the edict? And it makes the king either look like he's incompetent or an accomplice. So how does the king get rid of Haman without making himself look like a fool in the process? That's his dilemma. So he's thinking about that out in the garden. Meanwhile, Haman is inside making many miscalculations. Uh, he begins pleading with Esther. And he says, it says here that he knew evil was determined for him. So he knows the wrath of the king. He knows what's coming. So he begins pleading, begins uh, begging for his life from Esther. One commentator points out the arrogant bully became, as usual, as usual a whining coward, and that's Haman. He's pleading for his life. Now, this is one of his first miscalculations is in Persian custom, no man was ever allowed to be in the presence of one of the king's harem unattended. So if you, were, you didn't want to be in there, you know, within the presence of one of his harem. Secondly, Persian custom also stated that no man, under any circumstances, could be within seven steps of one of the king's harem. So they always had, there was sort of this, bubble around Esther uh, that kept all these men out. Now, there was exceptions, of course, for the king's eunuchs and for the uh, maidservants that waited on Esther. But here, Haman is basically throwing himself at Esther's feet. In fact, it says in verse 8, the king returned from the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine, and Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. So he's, he's right there. Clearly in breach of Persian custom and breach of the laws. And the king said, will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? And as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. So there obviously were some servants nearby who, who came in for this and, and covered Haman's face. But you notice what happens? The king, after wandering around the garden for a little bit, comes in. And there's Haman. Looking like it's a compromising situation for Haman. You see what Haman delivered to the king on a silver platter? An excuse. 
I can kill Haman for something totally that doesn't make me look like an idiot in the process. I can accuse him of the crime of having assaulted the queen, and then I, I don't have to... It's, it's sort of an easy out for King Ahasuerus. And so he says, what are you doing? I don't, I don't think that the king necessarily thought that Haman was acting untoward to Esther. I think he instead sees an opportunity here. Ah, I've got something I can pin on Haman. And so immediately they stuff him and they slap the handcuffs on Haman. And this is when there's another interesting turn of events. Uh, Suddenly, a before-unmentioned eunuch steps forward in verse 9. Now, Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. Talk about poetic justice, right? I mean, William Shakespeare couldn't have written this well. That uh, one of the servants happens to interject, excuse me, king, um, you know, if, if you're wondering what to do with Haman, I have a suggestion. Uh, I just happened to notice this giant 70-foot-tall spike that had been erected at uh, Haman's house in which he was planning to execute Mordecai, and uh, it might be a good, useful tool for you. So here it is. The, the, you know that expression, giving somebody enough rope to hang themselves? Well, here Haman has done exactly that. In trying to pin down Mordecai, he's actually created the instrument of his own death, which here was this spike. I know it says gallows, but uh, typically the, the Hebrew word here is used as tree, and it would have referred to a spike on which the Persians impaled their enemies. And so Haman is taken out. And he has dealt a swift justice on his own spike. And Haman comes to an ignoble end. Here's what I want to highlight, though. Haman has reaped what he has sown. And final judgment here is issued to Haman. And this is what I want to make clear. The final judgment exposes our masks. Now, obviously... It may come long before then. You know, if we think we can fool everyone, that's just not true. You know, that's the famous words of Abraham Lincoln. You can fool some of the people all the time, and you can fool all the people some of the time. But you can't fool all the people all the time. And we might add to that, and you can never fool God any of the time. Because the fact is, somebody may be very skillful in trying to cover their tracks. And, you know, Haman could have gotten away with this for many years. Sooner or later, it's going to be revealed. Certainly at the, the throne of God, if not before. The final judgment exposes who we really are. There's no hiding, there's going to be no masks at the final judgment. God sees all, he knows all, all will be exposed. Listen to some verses. This is from Acts 17, verse 31. It says that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. So the day is fixed. Judgment is coming. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5 says that when Jesus comes, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the hearts. So the, the mass, the, the facade that people use will be pulled back at that final judgment. 
Perhaps the greatest representation is found in Matthew 25, verse 31 to 34. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels are with him, he will sit on his throne and before him shall gather all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So on that day, it will be very clear who are the goats and who are the sheep. And all the masks will be off. And the final judgment will expose everything that is hidden in darkness. Question is, when that day comes, on which side will we fall? Now, there's no one perfect, right? But there are those who have forgiven, who have found the grace of God to meet them at their, in their sinful state. So there are those who are forgiven, children of God by adoption, And then, on the other hand, are those who have rejected the gift of God and who have walked according to their own lusts and their own lives and who will be separated eternally. That's it. That will be the final judgment between those two. And no amount of mass or or hiding one's sin can ever excuse one from that final judgment. So we think about the masks that come off in Esther 7. There's two things I want to conclude with. An observation and a question. First, an observation. Notice this in the text, and it stood out to me as it was pointed out to me. That is, the action that saves also condemns. Do you notice that, by the way? Esther comes, and she reveals to the king the truth. And that truth at the same time provides the way of salvation or deliverance for the Jews. But it's also the the sentence of death to Haman. So the same action, you know, as Esther comes and pleads to the king, it, it on one hand exposes Haman and condemns him. On the other hand, it provides deliverance for her people. And let me simply say that the gospel does the same. Wherever the gospel is preached, there are those who believe and are saved. And then there are those who are condemned by the gospel because they reject it and they refuse to receive it. So the gospel message which is proclaimed is both a message which saves and which condemns. Again, the question must be on which side are we? And then finally a question. The question is this, who are you really? We said at the beginning that who we really are will eventually be exposed. Who we really are will eventually be revealed. So the question is, who are you really? Are are you a person who who your, your life bears testimony to who you really are? Or do you wear a mask? Conceal your true character. Conceal your identity. Well, as those who wish to walk in integrity before the Lord, it's time then to take the masks off.